0: Rishi Sunak officially becomes Britain's new Prime Minister. He's the first person of color and first Hindu to hold the job, and also the 3rd PM this year. It's Tuesday, October 25th. This is WBR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoi. Coming up, the trial of the Trump family business for tax evasion is getting underway in New York. Also this hour, experts weigh in on whether COVID has started to evolve into a less erratic and more predictable disease. And five longtime friends from the Boston area form a band during the pandemic, even though
1: they don't know how to play any instruments. Knocked out of our routines and reminded of life's fragility, our mindset shifted from why would we do that to why wouldn't we do that.
0: In sports, the Patriots and Celtics both lose rain and clouds throughout the day today in the 60s. It's
2: 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Newly appointed British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak delivered his first address to the United Kingdom today. Sunak is now facing the task of tackling Britain's highest inflation rate in more than 40 years. He also warned that the UK is facing a profound economic challenge but pledged to serve with integrity and work to unite his party. The United States and its allies are rejecting Russian allegations that Ukraine is preparing to deploy a radioactive dirty bomb. NPR's Giles Snyder reports the U.S. is warning Russia not to use the allegation as a pretext.
3: The U.S., along with allies Britain and France, have issued a joint statement rejecting the Russian allegation as transparently false. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby. There's
4: absolutely nothing to the Russian allegation that the Ukrainians uh, are planning or preparing to set off a dirty bomb, uh, you, you know, that, that can then be blamed on, on Russia.
3: Kirby says there is no indication that Moscow has decided to use a nuclear weapon, but the U.S. is warning of severe consequences. The State Department says the Russian allegation is right out of Moscow's playbook and that the world would see through any attempt to use it as a pretext for escalation. Giles Snyder, NPR News.
2: More than four and a half million Americans will not have the right to vote in this year's midterm elections due to a felony conviction. NPR's Ashley Lopez has more on a new report published today by The Sentencing Project. 2%
5: of the voting age population in the U.S. are ineligible to cast a ballot due to state laws banning people with felony convictions from voting. Currently, 48 states across the country have these laws, but how restrictive they are varies from state to state. According to the report, disenfranchisement rates this year range from 0.15% in Massachusetts to more than 8% in Alabama, Mississippi, and Tennessee. In Vermont and Maine, along with the District of Columbia, 0% of the population is disenfranchised because those jurisdictions allow people in prison to vote. Overall, the number of Americans disenfranchised due to a felony conviction has dropped by 24 percent since 2016. Ashley Lopez, NPR News. An
2: investment conference nicknamed Davos in the Desert is underway in Saudi Arabia. NPR's David Gura reports many of the world's top bank executives are attending the event.
6: Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, David Solomon of Goldman Sachs, Charles Scharf of Wells Fargo. Billionaire Stephen Schwartzman, the CEO of the private equity firm Blackstone, is there. So is Ray Dalio, who ran the world's largest hedge fund until recently.
2: That's NPR's David Gurra reporting. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. From WBOR
0: in Boston, I'm Rupa Chenoy. The former U.S. Transportation Secretary, who oversaw the 2019 investigation into the MBTA, will speak to lawmakers on Beacon Hill today. Ray LaHood is expected to weigh in on safety practices at the T. WPR's Simon Rios has a preview.
7: LaHood's probe led to a report faulting the T for failing to carry out critical preventative maintenance and inspections. Investigators found shortcomings in the application of safety standards in almost every area they examined. Representative Bill Strauss, chair of the Transportation Committee, says the 2019 report reads like it could have been written yesterday. How tragic
8: it is that so many of the management and structural problems at the T were fully known, fully revealed three years ago, yet the situation remains as it was then.
7: The committee is gathering information for a report on the T due by the end of the year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios.
0: Cambridge is the first Massachusetts community to do away with all parking space minimums. Those are rules that require a certain number of parking spots be available for apartment buildings, offices, or stores. Supporters of the idea say it could lower the cost of rent because there will be more space to build on. The city council also voted last night to allow people to rent out parking spaces they aren't using. The father of five-year-old Harmony Montgomery is due in a Manchester court today. Police arrested 32-year-old Adam Montgomery yesterday. He faces new second-degree murder charges relating to the girl's death. Harmony was last seen in 2019, but was not reported missing for two years. Prosecutors say they confirmed new evidence linking Adam Montgomery to her death. Firefighters can get free cancer screenings today at Polar Park in Worcester. Statistics show firefighters have a 14 percent greater risk of dying from cancer than the general population. Dr. Justin Maykill is the chief of colorectal surgery at UMass Memorial Health. He says firefighters can meet with experts at today's event.
9: For example, they go to a dermatology station where they actually go through a complete skin examination and then if they were to need to have a biopsy or some type of a additional test, it would be scheduled subsequently.
0: Today's screening event runs from 4 to 7 p.m. It's 7.06.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by inuwindow with the Hunter Douglas Season of Style event, featuring the PowerView Smart Motorization System, Hunter Douglas at Innuendo and Natick and InuWindow.com, and Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and health care providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com.
0: The Patriots lost to the Chicago Bears 33-14 to last night in Foxborough. Things were no better for the Celtics. They lost to the Bulls 120-102 to in Chicago. Tonight, the Bruins will be back at the Garden to skate with the Dallas Stars. Fog this morning, and it'll be cloudy today with a chance for showers high in the mid-60s. Cloudy overnight with more lingering showers in the 50s. Another round of showers and storms tomorrow. It'll be in the mid-60s again. We'll finally dry out on Thursday. It's 58 degrees in Boston at 7.07.
10: WBUR supporters include Scribner, publisher of The Song of the Cell, by the Emperor of All Maladies author Siddhartha Mukherjee, an exploration of medicine and the new
11: ability to manipulate cells. Available in bookstores and online. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
12: And I'm Leila Fauden. Russian diplomats say they'll take their unfounded claim that Ukraine is preparing to use a dirty bomb inside its own borders to the U.N. Security Council today. To discuss, NPR National Security Correspondent Greg Myrie is here. Hi, Greg.
13: Hi, good morning, Layla.
12: So what are Ukraine and its allies saying about this Russian allegation about a radioactive bomb?
13: Well, Ukraine, the U.S., and other NATO countries say it's absolutely false that Ukraine is preparing a dirty bomb. Ukraine has invited United Nations inspectors to come see for themselves. They say Ukraine has nothing to hide. Now, we should note, we're marking the 60th anniversary of the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. That was a nuclear showdown between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And we're going to hear now about those events and and how quickly they can spiral out of control when nuclear weapons become part of the debate. Missiles in Cuba add to an already clear and present danger. President John F. Kennedy laid out the risk in a televised speech during the Cuban Missile Crisis. In the decades since, new details only reinforce how close the U.S. and Soviets came to nuclear war. Consider one of the four Soviet submarines that was headed toward Cuba and wasn't designed for warm waters.
14: Their air conditioning uh, and
13: electricity was compromised. Uh, It got very hot in the sub over an estimated 120 degrees. Peter Kornblub is with the National Security Archive, a private research group. Soviet sailors were fainting from the heat and lack of oxygen. A U.S. Navy ship had detected the sub and the Americans released depth charges. The intended message was that the sub should surface. That's not how it was received by the Soviet commander. The sub was actually disabled um, from the shockwaves
14: of uh, these explosions. Their communications were knocked out. The
13: captain did not want to surface because he thought that, you know, the World War III had broken out. Mariana Bujarin of Harvard's Kennedy School explains what the commander, Captain Valentin Savitsky, did next.
15: Being pursued for a day, unable to recharge batteries, unable to communicate uh, with Moscow, and under constant barrage of these explosions that sounded like sledgehammers, Captain Savitsky basically lost his cool and said, um, arm the nuclear torpedo.
13: In a stroke of good fortune, the overall commander for all four Soviet subs happened to be on this particular submarine. His name was Captain Vasily Arhipov. He saved the day, and perhaps the world, when he went in and dissuaded
15: um, Captain Valentin Savitsky from arming and using the nuclear torpedo.
13: On the same day, October 27th, Soviet forces in Cuba shot down an American U-2 spy plane, killing the pilot. President Kennedy faced tremendous pressure to respond. Possibly with U.S. air strikes on Cuba, or even a ground invasion. But former diplomat Philip Zellico says Kennedy kept his composure.
3: At no time does President Kennedy jump to the conclusion that I guess they've decided to go to war. There is a general hesitation to overinterpret the meaning of all that
8: gunfire.
13: Zelico says Kennedy and others in his inner circle had served in World War II. They were wary of rash actions that could spiral out of control.
3: Because of the combat experience, and especially President Kennedy's experience, there was at least some measure of humility about what they didn't know and a reluctance to overreact, which I think was very important.
13: The crisis was resolved when the Soviets publicly agreed to remove their missiles from Cuba, while the U.S. secretly pledged to withdraw its missiles from Turkey. The Kennedy administration's narrative was that the U.S. came out on top because it took a tough stance and forced the Soviets to retreat. Peter Kornblue says this is misleading.
14: The Cuban Missile Crisis was resolved through diplomacy,
13: dialogue, back channel communications, and compromise. And Kornblue says we should take heed today. The ultimate lesson of the Cuban Missile Crisis is that. When there are human beings, particularly
14: authoritarian personalities, controlling nuclear weapons, um, the world is in a very dangerous
8: situation.
12: So that's reporting from NPR's Greg Myrie. Greg's still with us. So listening to that, Greg, there are, of course, chilling parallels between then and now. But today's also very different, right?
13: Sure, there are some differences. Back in 1962, the U.S. and Soviet and the Soviets were in direct confrontation. Thousands of nuclear weapons aimed at each other. Today, just one country has the nuclear weapons, Russia, and the other doesn't, Ukraine. And yet we see Russia making a claim without evidence that
11: it's Ukraine that's posing the threat here.
12: And PR's Greg Myrie, thank you.
11: My pleasure. Voters in this fall's elections are choosing 435 members of the House of Representatives, but of all those races, fewer than three dozen are competitive. Voters in those few districts will determine which party controls the House. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith visited one.
5: North Carolina's 13th congressional district runs from the city of Raleigh all the way out into two rural counties. And it's in the fast-growing suburbs in between where Democrat Wiley Nickel was knocking on doors this past Saturday.
16: Hey, how are you I'm Wiley Nickel? I'm your state senator. Okay. Running to be your congressman.
5: Nickel, who is also a defense attorney, is aiming his pitch at registered Democrats and people with no party preference listed. At one house, a man answers the door who says he used to be a Republican, but changed his registration because of Trump. He's already voted for Nickel, who walks away energized.
16: And it just takes a, you know, a smaller group of folks, you know, in the center, center right, to say we're tired of it and we win this race.
5: Bo Hines, the Republican candidate, is a 27-year-old, Trump-endorsed former college football player who describes himself as a MAGA warrior. He spoke last month at a rally the former president held in the state. We
6: need conservative fighters that will go on offense, take ground back, just like President Trump did during the course of his administration.
5: The Hines campaign declined to comment for this story. Outside of early voting sites in the district, a trend quickly emerges in interviews with voters. Voters, even those not registered with a party, are casting their ballots through a partisan lens. Take Jim Miller, who describes himself as fiercely independent, and yet says he couldn't imagine sending another Republican to Washington.
16: Hell no to Bo. <laughs> uh,
5: That is a tagline in one of the ads.
16: Yes, I know, that's why I said it, but you know, what? What qualifications does he have? Really, he's just a young guy. I think he's got a lot of growing up to do.
5: Ted and Judy White voted for Hines. Inflation, schools,
17: the, the, the wokeness of what's going on,
5: the all of the people with the violence, everything's just out of control. They see Democrats as a threat Now,
17: I have voted in the past for Democrats, Yeah, but
5: uh, not this time. Not this cycle. Not not this cycle. No. (laughs) The candidates aren't shying away from this division. They're leaning into it. Here's Hines in an interview that aired on CBS 17 in Raleigh earlier this month.
10: This is more than just a political fight.
18: This is spiritual warfare. It's good versus evil. And I think that you're seeing Republicans come together.
5: Nickel, the Democratic candidate, also gives a stark warning about the stakes in this election.
16: Democracy is on the ballot and the right to choose is on the ballot and is especially important in this race. You know, I've, you know, served my, my state in the Senate. And on the other side, you know, we've got an election denier who says he's 100 percent pro-Trump.
5: Hines has said he will accept the results of this election. But he's noncommittal about whether Joe Biden won in 2020 fair and square, which he did. Even in a swing district like this one, there just aren't that many swing voters, says Mike Rusher, a former Republican Party operative in the state who now works with corporate clients.
19: You would have
3: thought that candidates might focus more on those swing voters to make persuasive arguments. Um, As we approach the finish line, in hindsight, you know, I think people can see why maybe that's not needed uh, in a year like this.
5: A year when turning out base voters is the key to winning. Tamara Keith, NPR News, Raleigh, North Carolina.
12: Students, teachers and parents gathered for a candlelight vigil in St. Louis last night after a shooting at their high school earlier in the day. Police say a former student broke into the school and killed a teenager and a teacher before the gunman was killed in an exchange of gunfire with police. Chad Davis with St. Louis Public Radio reports on last night's remembrance.
9: 16-year-old Alex Macias took time at the vigil to remember Jean Kushka, his health and PE teacher, as someone who valued her work and family.
20: She has several kids. She has grandkids. She had pets she cared about. She seemed like she actually cared about the students to me.
9: Kushka was one of two people shot and killed Monday morning at Central Visual and Performing Arts High School. Police have not yet identified the name of the 16-year-old student who was killed. Parents who had children at the school recalled the horror they witnessed when they were first alerted about the shooting. Brian Macias, Alex's father, says the news was difficult to process as he arrived at the school to pick Alex up. I can't imagine myself going through that and then I'm trying to like I just really wish that he had not have to gone through that. 15-year-old Eli Cardi, who attends Collegiate School of Medicine and Bioscience, which shares the same campus with the Performing Arts High School, says Kushka was her cross-country coach.
21: I saw her just last week at a meet. I mean, I, I'm just, it's surreal, and it shouldn't have happened.
9: Police have not offered a motive from the suspect, whom they say was a 19-year-old former student, and who was killed at the scene. Teachers, students, and loved ones are being urged to call Behavioral Health Response or district counselors for support. For NPR News, I'm Chad Davis.
12: This is NPR News.
0: I'm Rupa Shnei. Coming up on WBUR's Morning Edition, health experts say there are signs the COVID pandemic is evolving into an illness that's easier to predict and fight. It's seven nineteen.
5: Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at wbur.org/cars.
4: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. And AE Events, designed in production of corporate and non-profit events, weddings and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic. Artful. Accomplished.
21: I'm Vipa Fernandez. A 12-year-old girl from Ukraine has been keeping a diary since the early days of the war there. She's one of the lucky ones who made it out with her grandmother. I know there is no future there because um, universities, schools, everything is destroyed. That's next time on Here and Now, today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Some fog and drizzle this morning. That could
0: hang around until midday, then cloudy and a high near 66. There's a slight chance of rain this afternoon. Tonight, temperatures fall to a low around 59, and we may see more showers. Tomorrow, cloudy, near 64, with a good chance of showers and maybe thunderstorms that could produce heavy rain. It's 59 degrees in Boston at 721.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the 2022 Subaru Forester Wilderness with 9.2 inches of ground clearance and all-terrain tires for off-road capability. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss and from paychecks the paychecks team of professionals and compliance specialists work to help businesses automate all hr functions into one platform so that they can instead focus on their business and their employees and from the annie e casey foundation
12: it's morning edition from npr news i'm leila falden
11: and I'm Stevenskeep. For close to a year now, Omicron and its subvariants have dominated the pandemic. Each time we learn of a new variant, people have to ask, do the vaccines cover this one? What changes now? Scientists are asking how changes in the coronavirus make it such an unpredictable adversary. Here's NPR's health correspondent Rob Stein. Throughout the pandemic, the SARS-CoV-2 virus has been evolving fast,
8: blindsiding the world with one new variant after another. Sally Otto is an evolutionary biologist at the University of British Columbia.
22: We often have a period of time where we're like, oh, is that it? Are we done? Is this over? And we had that, I don't know if you remember, before Delta started to spread. I was like, oh, shoot, now this is it. But then Delta came on the picture. And then even then there was like, phew, maybe this is the end of the Delta wave and we're home free. And then Omicron hit.
8: And Omicron was unlike anything before it. The spike protein the virus uses to infect cells bore more mutations than any variant so far, helping it dodge the defenses of people who had been infected or vaccinated. Omicron swept the world with breathtaking speed and drove devastating surges. The World Health Organization hasn't declared a new Greek-letter variant since Omicron. Instead, Omicron has been spinning off a dizzying parade of subvariants with names like BQ1, BF7, and XBB. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is watching a dozen different Omicron sub right now. So I started calling scientists to find out if there's any evidence the virus's evolution might be slowing down.
7: Well,
23: it's it's... <laughs> The evolution itself has not really slowed down. No, the virus
22: is still having changes at the same rate that it was before.
24: SARS-CoV-2 is continuing to evolve extremely rapidly. It's still faster than the fastest flu that's
8: circulating.
25: There's no evidence that the evolution is slowing down.
8: No, it's cooking. It's cooking at a high temperature. That's Christian Anderson at Scripps Research in California, Emma Hodcroft at the University of Bern in Switzerland, Trevor Bedford at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle, Manon Raganay Cronin from the University of Chicago, and Michael Warby at the University of Arizona. They all say what has changed is how the virus is evolving. We're entering a, a sort of interesting and quite distinct phase of virus evolution. Ravi Gupta is at the University of Cambridge in the UK. We've been accustomed to seeing
18: waves of totally new variants with very, very different groups of mutations. But now we're seeing something different. We're seeing multiple different
8: strains of virus. That all have one thing in common, according to the University of Burns, Emma Hodcroft.
22: The children of Omicron, so the many kind of direct children and cousins within the diverse Omicron family, those have displaced each other, but that same family has been dominating.
8: By continuing to rapidly evolve into a panoply of subvariants through a very specific kind of evolution. Manin Ragnay Cronin from the University of Chicago.
25: What's happening right now is that um, we seem to see for the first time evidence of wide scale convergent evolution. We have what people are calling a swarm of Omicron viruses, which have different ancestries within Omicron, but which have the same set of mutations.
8: Different Omicron subvariants have all been independently converging on mutations that give them the same advantage. Here's Sally Otto from the University of British Columbia again.
22: The bad news is that these variants are hitting upon new ways of getting in to our bodies and better infecting ourselves. So it's like an uninvited guest, and we recognize what they look like, and we don't let them in our house. But then it puts on a costume, and we don't recognize it as well anymore, and we open the door, and it's too late. <laughs>
8: Too late to keep the virus from continuing to infect massive numbers of people, potentially helping fuel yet another surge and giving the virus lots of chances to reproduce, mutate, and evolve even more. Jeremy Camille is an immunologist at Louisiana State University.
16: This virus is getting a lot of lottery tickets, if you will, and it looks like with these new variants, these mutations are like the jackpot. The
8: possible good news is that Omicron's subvariants could keep evolving this way without suddenly becoming a much bigger threat again. Here's Emma Hodcroft again. So I
22: think that the fact that we seem to have stepped out of a phase where we're getting completely new viruses from different parts of the tree sweeping in and dominating, this might be a sign that we're moving towards a more kind of stable future for the virus.
8: But Hodcroft and others warned that's by no means guaranteed. Jeremy Camille.
16: I just hope that this is kind of settling into a picture where, yes, it's going to be Omicron for a very long time, and we may see little waves, and people might catch COVID, but it's going to be a more predictable event in terms of being something that most people can hopefully shrug off. Is that going to hold? I sure hope so, because if it doesn't, it'll be a pretty scary future.
8: Because the virus is still so new, no one knows how many more tricks it has up its sleeve. Christian Anderson from Scripps Research.
14: Because we are literally dealing with a completely novel virus here, we are dealing with a virus that we have never encountered starting from day one, that we have sort of continued to go back to like, oh, but it must be like flu, or it must be like the common cold coronaviruses. And unfortunately, we just don't know if that's the case.
8: There's no way to rule out, for example, the possibility that a dramatically different variant might emerge yet again, possibly after simmering inside the body of someone with a weak immune system. Michael Warby is from the University of Arizona.
18: I guarantee you that there are people who have been persistently infected with Delta and Alpha who have some really weird combinations of mutations. And I'm fully prepared for a delta-based or alpha-based Omicron-like event where one of those zombie viruses that's been cooking away within someone emerges, um, I think that is going to happen.
8: If it does, this relatively calm phase of the pandemic, dominated by Omicron, could come to an abrupt end and DASH hopes that the virus would fade into the background. Rob Stein, NPR News.
11: This is NPR News.
0: This is ninety point nine WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. head on Morning Edition, jury selection has begun in the trial of the Trump Organization. The Manhattan District Attorney has charged the company with criminal tax fraud. It's seven twenty-nine. The Boston Book Festival is this Friday and Saturday in Copley Square. WBUR's Meghna Chakrabarti, Tiziana Deering, and Daryl C. Murphy will be there. The event is free. Get more information at wbur.org/events.
16: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Rishi Sunak is officially Britain's new prime minister. He was appointed today by King Charles and later offered reassurances to the British people outside 10 Downing Street. I will place economic stability and
6: confidence at the heart of this government's agenda. This will mean difficult decisions to come. Sunak
16: replaces Liz Truss, who stepped down as Prime Minister after six weeks in office amid a backlash to her economic proposal. Truss replaced Boris Johnson as leader of Britain's Conservative Party. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is in Croatia, where she's been reaffirming U.S. support for Ukraine and denouncing the actions of Russian President Vladimir Putin.
8: All of us here pledge to stand with Ukraine and with the Ukrainian people for recognizing their courage in Crimea, and other territories that he has attempted to illegally annex and across the country.
16: Pelosi was speaking earlier today in Zagreb at a summit focusing on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Putin recently announced the annexation of four regions, including Luhansk and Donetsk. Putin later imposed martial law on those areas, a move denounced as illegal and illegitimate by the White House and other Western countries. This is NPR News from Washington. The CEOs of J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, and Wells Fargo are among the banking executives in Saudi Arabia. They're attending a three-day investment conference known as Davos in the desert. Pakistan's prime minister is seeking answers about the fatal police shooting of a Pakistani journalist in Kenya. As Kate Bartlett reports, police in Nairobi say that shooting was an accident.
13: Pakistani Prime Minister Shahbaz Sharif tweeted that he had spoken to Kenyan President William Ruto, who promised an investigation into the shooting of journalist Arshad Sharif Sunday night near the capital, Nairobi. In a statement, Kenyan police said they regretted the unfortunate incident. They said they had shot the car the journalist was in with his brother after it had failed to stop at a roadblock meant to catch a stolen vehicle. The journalist had been a vocal supporter of ousted Pakistani leader Imran Khan, according to the BBC, and had left Pakistan after complaining he was being harassed by the country's Federal Investigation Agency. For NPR News, I'm Kate Bartlett in Johannesburg.
16: The two candidates in Pennsylvania's Senate race will be facing off tonight in their first and only debate of the campaign. Democrat John Fetterman, the state's lieutenant governor, will be going up against Republican Mehmet Oz. Fetterman is still recovering from a stroke suffered five months ago and will be using closed captioning during the debate. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington.
0: From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shenoy. Worcester leaders are debating what to do with a statue of Christopher Columbus that sits just outside the city's train station. The city council is meeting tonight to discuss whether or not the statue should be removed. One counselor tells the Telegram and Gazette the statue is oppressive and shouldn't be in a public place. It was vandalized in 2020 and 2021. A Canadian man is awaiting trial on counts related to bomb threats on Boston locations. Boston police say Joshua Kimball sent bomb threats to Boston Children's Hospital, Mass General, and Boston Public Library, along with other places. He's being charged and tried in Canada. The autumn leaves across New England this year have been brilliant in many areas. WBUR's Dan Guzman reports it's not too late to check them out, but you might want to do it by this weekend.
9: Foliage expert Jeff Folger recommends Boston and heading south along the coast, although there will be a few good spots as far west as the Pioneer Valley.
14: You're gonna find trees in those areas that are just as pretty as can be. Uh, Some trees are gone, some trees are green, the oaks are just coming in.
9: Folger adds that in his two decades as a professional leaf peeper, he's noticed climate change has pushed back the start of the foliage season
14: used to be maybe the second to last week of September. It would, you know, start to turn. But, you know, by 2010 and later, it just seems to be slowing down.
9: He says this year's colors didn't really pop until the first week of October. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dan Guzman.
0: It's 734.
9: WBUR supporters include the
10: MIT Museum, completely reimagined and now open in its new location in Kendall Square. Curious?
0: Eastbound Store Lane is closed at Western Avenue in Brighton right now. That's because a truck hit the BU Bridge overnight. State police say the truck won't be removed until after the morning commute. In sports, the Patriots tried both Mac Jones and Bailey Zappi at quarterback last night, and neither had much success. The Pats lost to the Chicago Bears 33-14 in Foxboro. The Pats will visit the New York Jets on Sunday. The Celtics suffered their first loss of the season last night. They fell to the Bulls 120-102 to in Chicago. The Seas' next game is Friday at home against the Cavaliers. Tonight at the Garden, it's the Bruins and the Dallas Stars. In your forecast, fog this morning and a slight chance of showers. Temperatures will rise to a high in the mid-60s. More showers possible this afternoon and this evening as temperatures fall to a low in the upper 50s. Tomorrow, rain and thunderstorms, then cloudy with a high in the low to mid-60s. We dry out on Thursday for a mostly sunny day near 70. It's 59 degrees in Boston at 735.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater. Committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at EasyCater.com. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents.
11: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden, And I'm Steve Inskeep. In a New York City courtroom, the trial of the Trump Organization is getting underway.
12: Donald Trump's family business is charged with a scheme to avoid paying taxes through off-the-books benefits paid to top employees.
11: Ilya Meritz was on the scene for NPR for the first day of jury selection. Good morning. Good morning. What was the spectacle like?
18: First off, uh, this is state court in downtown Manhattan. So grandeur mixed with grime, echoey hallways. Think television legal dramas. Chung, chung. Sorry, I was doing the law and order signal there. That's right. All kinds of criminal defendants and their lawyers pass through in an average day. Stepping inside Judge Juan Mershon's courtroom, something you might notice is there is no one to sit in the defendant's chair. And that's because this trial is of two Trump business entities and not a person
11: because Donald Trump himself is not in any way charged. Correct. But there are a
18: bunch of lawyers there who are representing the Trump businesses. And what we saw Monday in court was a group of about 130 Manhattanites who are potential jurors. There were people from all walks of life filling every bench, every square inch of every seat in the room. And maybe the size of the jury pool says something about how laborious it's gonna be to whittle this group down to 12 jurors plus alternates. Donald Trump is not popular in New York, but he is famous.
11: Oh, the idea is to try to find a dozen people who don't already have some strong opinion about Donald Trump. Uh, How close did the judge get to finding 12?
18: Not close. The court got through an initial round of general questions with 18 possible jurors. They included a bartender, a hospital administrator, and an unemployed person. And They were asked if they consume a lot of news and what kind. Uh, Tuesday. Today, we will pick up with that same group of 18. And each legal team is going to have a chance to question them more closely. They'll be looking for anything they might not like in these jurors' history or their personal views. Judge Juan Rashan said he's hopeful we could get this whole process done by the end of the week and start opening statements. Next week, we will see.
11: Whenever the opening statements come, what do you watch for?
18: any and every mention of donald trump the person even though he is not a defendant for instance prosecutors say they can prove that trump personally signed tuition checks as a form of unreported compensation for his chief financial officer alan weisselberg Uh, weisselberg's grandkids were in private school and weisselberg is going to be a star witness i was in court in august when weisselberg pled guilty to his role in this scheme he was a co-defendant And I left the courthouse really wondering what the upshot of that agreement was going to be. Weisselberg pledged at the time to testify truthfully, and if he doesn't, he might get a hefty jail sentence. But at the same time, he has stayed loyal to Trump. He didn't flip on the former president. In fact, he's still collecting a paycheck from the Trump Organization. And I think both the defense and prosecution may see Weisselberg in some way as their witness and someone who can help them. So for Weisselberg, that'll be a thin rope to walk.
11: Okay, so hopefully they're taking taxes out of the paycheck he's still getting from the Trump Organization. But what kind of secrets might he have?
18: He knows the Trump Organization inside out. He's worked there for decades. He could really decode a lot of the documents that are the basis for this case. And I should just add, we know that Donald Trump is paying close attention. He posted about this proceeding twice on Monday, calling it, what else? A highly partisan Democrat witch hunt. William Meritz,
11: thanks so much. You're very welcome.
12: The teenager, who shot and killed four classmates at Michigan's Oxford High School last year and wounded seven other people, now faces the possibility of spending his life in prison. Ethan Crumbly pleaded guilty on Monday to charges including murder and terrorism. Quinn Kleinfelter from member station WDET in Detroit is following the case and joins us now. Hi, Quinn. Hello. So, Quinn, what was the scene like at Crumbly's plea hearing?
19: Crumbly was very stoic and terse. He kept his head down in the courtroom. Remember, he's 16 years old. Some families of his victims were there. The only thing he really said was the word yes as a prosecutor read the 24 charges against him. His lawyers claim Crumbly is taking accountability for his actions. He pleaded guilty. It was not part of any plea deal, though. He and his attorneys decided to plead guilty entirely on their own.
12: Okay, so Crumbly did offer some new information, right, that could strengthen a case against his parents, who are also charged in connection with what
1: their son did?
19: Yeah, but let me remind you what they were charged with. Prosecutors charged the parents, Jennifer and James Crumbly, with involuntary manslaughter. They mm-hmm. accused a couple of ignoring numerous warning signs that their son was troubled and could become violent. And the prosecution alleges the Crumleys scoffed at their son's request to receive some kind of counseling. They refused to remove him from school the day of the shooting. And their attorneys have since argued that the murder weapon, which was bought only days before the deadly rampage, was kept secure and locked away from their son. But during his plea hearing, prosecutors questioned Crumbly about that and allegations that his father had purchased the handgun as a present for his son.
16: Is it true that you asked him to buy the firearm? Yes. Is it true that you gave him your own money to buy the firearm? Yes. Is it true that on November the 30th, 2021, that 9mm handgun that you used in Oxford High School was not kept in a safe or locked container? Yes, it was not locked.
19: Now this is a, a different story than we heard before from the parents' attorneys. Uh, not only did Ethan Crumbly say his father did not prevent him from getting a hold of the gun, he says he actually gave his father the money to buy it for him. That's the first time we've heard that allegation. The parents will have their own trial. It's scheduled for next year.
12: So we've been talking about crumbly but how are the families of oxford high school students responding now that the shooter has pleaded guilty
19: well some say it's a relief they won't have to relive the incident during a trial Mm -hmm. Um, others say they fear that without a criminal trial they'll never know all the facts there are questions about why the school officials left crumbly in class the day of the shooting some teachers were allegedly worried about his state of mind um. There's some possibility of a future civil trial. Several family members have filed civil lawsuits against the Crumblys and school officials. During the plea hearing, a mother broke down in the courtroom as her child's name was read. Hmm. They were one of the victims of the shooting. Some of the parents spoke to the media. Megan Gregory said that her son escaped death by running from a bathroom after Crumbly had just gunned down another student there. Oh. She says her son was too traumatized to be in the same room with Crumbly again at the plea hearing. Gregory went on to say that she believes the stories that Crumbly had a rough home life and hopes that he receives some kind of treatment as long as he's never allowed to set foot outside of a prison again.
12: For instance, medication or mental health, when he didn't have that at home. So I hope that someday he does feel that remorse. I still saw evil.
19: The families of the victims will have a chance to address Crumbly personally when he's sentenced next year.
12: Quinn Kleinfelter, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Falded. And I'm Stephen Skeep.
0: I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, how schools in the Pacific Northwest have learned to cope with wildfires that disrupt the lives of students and teachers. And in our next hour, we hear from the author of a memoir that's become one of the most banned books in the U.S. In your forecast, it's foggy out, and there's a slight chance of showers most of the day today, otherwise cloudy and in the low to mid-60s. Tonight it falls into the 50s, and the chance of rain continues. Tomorrow, cloudy in the morning, rain likely in the afternoon in the low to mid-60s. The soggy weather ends on Thursday. It'll be mostly sunny and near 70. It's 59 degrees in Boston at 744.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ceres a nonprofit tackling our biggest sustainability challenges, including the climate and water crises. America's climate leadership is center stage at COP27. How can investors and companies go further, faster? Ceres has solutions. More at Ceres.org slash WBUR.
0: Now, in business news, several Boston-area employers say they will start paying for their workers' rides on the T's buses and trains. The T says Google, Fe, and the City of Boston are among those joining its new Pay-Per-Use limited fare program. That means the organizations will fully fund unlimited trips on the system. The T expects the program to run for at least two years. A Virginia company says it plans to buy up the Springfield-based Pride stores. Pride has 31 convenience stores and gas stations across the state, most of which are in Western Mass. Richmond-based Arco says it has tentatively reached an agreement to buy the locations for $230 million. It's 7:45.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp, using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR.
11: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falded. And I'm Steve Inskeep. As if the pandemic was not enough, schools in the Pacific Northwest face another problem. This too, a problem of something in the air. Katie Riddle reports from Portland on the smoke from forest fires.
26: Normally, Portlanders take advantage of every last dry day in the fall to be outside before the rains hit. But on this recent warm day at Irvington Elementary School, parents were picking up kids and hustling them home an eerie haze of yellow smoke hung in the air.
11: It's like a barbecue, it's like everybody's throwing, it's like every household has a
24: barbecue going right now.
26: Clay Harley is picking up his grandson, Roman.
24: What's up buddy? Did you guys go outside today during recess? No, right.
17: so at school, we didn't get to go outside today because of the smoke. We still had to do indoor recess in a small room and stuff.
26: What did you think about that?
17: Well, well, it made me feel mad. How come? Because the tire swings are more fun.
26: At another school a few miles away, Sam Balto teaches P.E. Children do better when they're more physically active. Balto's lesson plan this day was teaching kids how to strike the ball with their feet. It didn't go so well when he had to unexpectedly move to the gym. Balls were bouncing off walls. Kids were kicking other kids. The constraints led to behavior problems, he says.
13: Any of us, if we were more confined, we would have a harder time staying focused.
26: Tens of thousands of kids stayed inside last Thursday. Air quality reached unhealthy levels and schools canceled outdoor activities. Gabriella Goldfarb is the manager of environmental public health at the Oregon Health Authority.
5: The thing that we are most, that we most care about for immediate impacts are particulates.
26: Particulates, tiny pieces of matter carried by smoke. Health officials say they're dangerous in the short term, especially for people with breathing issues. But there could be long-term impacts too. The Oregon Health Authority uses science from national agencies to put out guidance for schools about when there are too many particulates in the air to let kids outside. But calculating risk is both science and art, says Goldfarb.
5: Actually, I just got off. Another smoke call, huddling, trying to come up with how to adjust our air advisories.
26: It's only in recent years the agency has added this to the list of hazards to monitor.
5: We're trying to strike that balance and give schools and families the tools they need to manage things.
26: Retta Doland is a superintendent in rural Oak Ridge, Oregon. On top of the physical effects, she says there's also mental health concerns. Last month, three quarters of her students evacuated because of a wildfire, a question that haunted her. Where did they go? Are you in a campground in the forest? Many Oak Ridge families were already in unstable housing situations. Are you in a trailer in a parking lot in one of our stores? Or are
5: you in a, a trailer that has a very bad roof on it and it leaks and there's a way to keep smoke out.
26: This community has been coping with dangerous air quality for more than a month now. But around here, dealing with wildfires is a way of life. There's a trick people have, says Doland, to manage the anxiety. Always have a list of the things you need to take with you if you have to leave fast. Doland has two lists, one for herself and one for the schools where 500 children are in her care. Katie A. Riddle, NPR News, Portland.
11: This is NPR News.
0: I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. There's another hour of morning edition coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to tell us what they've got for us today. Good morning, Tiziana.
20: Good morning, Rupa. How are you this morning? I'm good. How are you? I am gearing up for the City Space event tonight, celebrating the 10-year anniversary of Mm -hmm. Cognoscenti, but in a show before that. Yeah, you got a long day. It's good. Yep, yeah, but lots of fun coming. So today is one of my favorite kinds of shows that we do on Radio Boston because it's such a wide variety of subjects. We're gonna do from the newsroom with Deb Becker, mm-hmm. who's gone back out to the area around mass and Cass, First hand stories, which is what we, you know, really care about. What's happening for people who are there right now. Deb will bring that to us. I love
0: how we continue our coverage
20: on that, especially from Deb. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And Deb's such an amazing reporter on that subject. Um, Then we have two other kinds of stories. So we are going to talk with a woman who restores grave sites. Is that a Halloween thing? Uh, Well, so we are going to the grave this week. Yeah. Um, and, And yet seriously, you know, ancient headstones, old cemeteries, bringing them back to sort of their former beauty. Um, And then a mother-daughter team out in the Berkshires who do bilingual radio show every week as a service to the immigrant community there.
0: Oh, so much. I love it. Thank you for all of that. Absolutely. Have a good day, Tusiana. That's Radio Boston today at 11 and 3.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welland Montessori School, a Boston parent's family favorite. Toddler to grade 8. Inspire, challenge, empower. Open house November 6th. Register at Welland.org and Arts Emerson's On Beckett, Bill Irwin's deeply funny show at the Paramount Theater, October 26th through 30th. Get tickets at artsemerson.org.
12: Russia invaded Ukraine eight months ago, seemingly unprepared for the fight Ukraine would
13: put up. Zelensky has been remarkable. The top civilian and military leadership of Ukraine has proven to be extraordinarily intelligent, much more intelligent than either the Russians or the Americans yet realize.
12: I'm Kimberly atkins store, historian Timothy Snyder on how the war might end. That's on point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's
0: NPR news station. This is WBUR's morning edition. I'm Rupa Chenoy. During the summer of 2021, five working mothers in Milton had a crazy idea. They wanted to start a rock band. WBR contributor Joanna Weiss borrowed her husband's guitar. Her friend Layla picked up a tambourine. Imgay got her hands on an electric piano. Martha found a drum kit, Heather a bass guitar, and voila, the Lazy Susans were born. There was just one immediate problem. We didn't know how to play our instruments. The longtime friends got to work, and they set a deadline for their debut performance, Milton Porchfest, that September. Here's Joanna Weiss with their story.
1: Nobody expects a bunch of women in their 40s and 50s to start a rock band, especially if most of them have never played music before. Then again, nobody expected a pandemic. My friends and I started the Lazy Susans in those oddly quiet days in the summer of 2021 when we had sudden space in our schedules and a serious case of carpe diem, We'd fantasized for years about being in a band, crooning into karaoke machines and playing air drums in the bathroom mirror, but there was always something more important to do. Work, commutes, carpools, dishes. But knocked out of our routines and reminded of life's fragility, our mindset shifted from why would we do that to why wouldn't we do that? We called ourselves the Lazy Susans, because we wanted to rotate our turns at the microphone. In the beginning, we talked each other through chord changes and made sure we were counting to four at the same time. It's tougher than it sounds. We swapped reading glasses so we could decipher lyrics on our phones. Our first gig was Milton Porchfest in 2021. Before our set, on a beautiful Saturday afternoon, we watched a few hundred locals assemble in front of the beige stucco house with the narrow porch that would be our stage. We'd been part of these crowds for years, cheering on our husbands and friends. Now, we were the rockers. Five moms, gone electric. We played seven cover songs, a white-stripe song of Pat Benatar anthem, the Go-Go's We Got the Beat. So much fun! I wrote a long piece for Boston Magazine about the experience. The piece caught the attention of some producers in Los Angeles, and before I knew it, we were booked on the Kelly Clarkson show during Rad Moms Week, which is exactly what it sounds like. These women prove it's never too late to try something new. So please welcome the Lazy Susans. <laughs> <laughs> Thank y'all for coming. There was Thank some you. eye rolling from our kids. My friend Heather's husband joked that we'd skip the line. You're supposed to start by playing for the bartender on a Tuesday night, but we forged ahead. Treadwise. Long before we were a band, Heather, Imge, Layla, Martha, and I were friends. we <laughs> I <know>. are <laughs> so sad. fun. We met when our oldest kids were babies, and we started getting together for pizza every Friday night. Those weekly gatherings evolved into holiday meals and joint vacations, and we became a surrogate family. We could count on each other for anything. Now, we've applied that support system to music. More recently, we've been building songs together. Heather wrote a song about a dead relative's ashes that sat on her kitchen counter, though it's really a song about living your life without regret. Mix, and matches. Ooh, ashes. Layla wrote a song about watching her daughter face the challenges of teenagehood. I you and the I learned that if you have an argument with someone you love, you can quietly seethe in a corner or you can barricade yourself on the front porch with your guitar and write a song about it. I have two of those. The trick to making music, it turns out, is starting and sticking with it. And that's tougher than it sounds, too. Our biggest challenge throughout this experience, bar none, has been scheduling. Getting five working mothers into the same room at the same time once normal life resumed. But we declared the Lazy Susans a priority and forced ourselves to make it happen, regardless of how many other responsibilities we ignored. That might be the most rock and roll thing we've done. At Milton Porch Fest this September, we played eight original songs. Hey everybody, welcome to Porch Fest! I wore a neon pink mesh shirt I'd picked up at a surf shop on the Jersey Shore. A year ago, we could get by on goodwill and generous condescension. Aren't they cute moms in a band? This time, we wanted to exceed expectations. We wanted it to be perfect. Spoiler alert, it wasn't. Our speakers howled feedback. Some of the mics weren't working at all. And one of my guitar strings wouldn't stay in tune. But the rock gods care about attitude, not perfection. When in doubt, just smile and make some more noise with your friends. My goal is to not think. Not think. It's hard. Just
27: rock.
0: Joanna Weiss is the editor-in-chief of Experience Magazine at Northeastern University. The Lazy Susans are among those appearing tonight at WBUR's City Space as part of the 10th anniversary celebration for our Ideas and Opinions page, Cognoscenti. Learn how you can get tickets to the party by visiting WBUR.org slash events. The fog may hang around all morning and the showers may hold off, but it'll be cloudy and in the mid-60s today. Tonight it falls into the 50s and the slight chance of showers continues. Tomorrow a good chance of rain and thunderstorms and temperatures in the low 60s. Mostly sunny on Thursday, near 70. It's 58 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Central Square Theater. With Lloyd Suzz's critically acclaimed play, The Chinese League. Begins November 10th. CentralSquareTheatre.org.
23: I'm On Point Executive Producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Rishi Sunak meets with King Charles and makes his first speech to the people of the UK as their third prime minister in four months. It's Tuesday, October 25th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Chanoi. Coming up ahead of the midterms, election deniers are signing up as poll watchers in Colorado to investigate conspiracy theories.
22: I literally had one watcher get on their knees and follow my wires just so that I could prove to them that it is a closed network, that it's not connected to the Internet.
0: And we hear concerns from voters in an Ohio district, one of many that may determine which party controls Congress. Also this hour, the fall colors in New England have been spectacular, surprise, even long-time leap watchers.
14: I was expecting it to be a lot earlier, and it just kept on waiting, waiting, and then all of a sudden, bam, it happened.
0: Showers, clouds, and 60s today. It's 8.01. Now the news.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. In his first speech as Britain's Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak pledged to fix the United Kingdom's massive economic problems. NPR's Frank Langford reports from London.
10: Sunak said he would not only address the country's economic challenges, but also fix the mistakes made by the past administration of Liz Truss, which tanked markets.
6: I will place economic stability and confidence at the heart of this government's agenda. This will mean difficult decisions to come. The government I lead will not leave the next generation with a debt to settle that we were too weak to pay ourselves.
10: Sunak is Britain's third prime minister in less than two months. He's the first Hindu in Number 10 Downing Street and the youngest premier in more than two centuries. Frank Langford, NPR News, London.
2: Russia continues to make unfounded claims that Ukraine is preparing to use a so-called dirty bomb. NPR's Greg Myrie reports Russian officials are planning to bring their accusations before the United Nations Security Council today.
13: Ukraine has invited the U.N. nuclear agency to visit two sites that have been identified by Russia, and inspectors are likely to visit in the coming days. And President Volodymyr Zelensky say it may be that Russia is actually preparing such an attack, but the Biden administration says it's not seeing any evidence of this right now.
2: That's NPR's Greg Myrie reporting. The White House is turning up the pressure on Congress to pass additional legislation that addresses gun violence in the United States. NPR's Giles Snyder reports the latest call is in response to a school shooting in Missouri on Monday.
3: After a former student killed two people and wounded seven others at the Central Visual and Performing Arts High School in St. Louis, White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre condemned gun violence and called on the Senate to take up a ban on assault-style weapons.
15: Every day that the Senate fails to send assault weapons ban to the president's desk or waits to take another other common sense actions is a day too late for our families and communities impacted
26: by gun violence.
3: The shooting at the St. Louis school was the 40th this year, according to Education Week, which began tracking school shootings in 2018. Snyder, NPR News.
2: President Biden will receive his latest COVID-19 booster shot today. The new vaccine was formulated to target the Omicron subvariants of the virus, which are now the dominant strains in the United States. Biden was delayed in getting the additional dose because he tested positive for the virus in July and then came down with a rebound case. You're listening to NPR News in Washington.
0: From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shenoy. A former U.S. transportation secretary will speak to state lawmakers today about safety failures at the T. After leaving the Obama administration, Ray LaHood was part of an independent panel that examined the T in 2019. The probe found many of the same issues pointed out in this year's investigation by the Federal Transit Administration. Both blame the agency for failing to carry out proper safety maintenance and inspections. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says it's up to local and state leaders to get the T fully staffed. Wu told WBUR's Radio Boston yesterday that having too many open positions at the transit agency is one of its biggest problems. We need to figure out
25: plans to move and accelerate the repairs and all the projects that are low-hanging fruit, like electrification and the red-blue connector, but right now we don't even have enough signal dispatchers on staff to be able to run all of our our subway lines at the frequency that they physically could be running.
0: Wu adds there is also what she calls a lack of confidence in the T following both safety and service problems. Three Massachusetts communities are sharing more than $6 million in federal money to help end youth homelessness. The Department of Housing and Urban Development is giving the money to Barnstable and Worcester counties, as well as the city of Lynn. The three will spend the next several months working with community partners to create a comprehensive plan. Lawmakers at the house have paid tribute to the Ukrainian national rowing team. Here's WBR Steve
6: Brown. The 20-member team took part in this past weekend's head of the Charles Regatta. The athletes say they consider themselves ambassadors of their nation, which has been under attack by Russia since February. Rower Olena Buryak delivered this message to the people of Massachusetts and beyond.
12: We want to remind to all the people in all the world that uh, Russia is a terrorist state. They are destroying our cities, our
21: homes, our, they're torturing our people.
6: Varyak urges people not to believe Russian propaganda about the conflict. She also thanked the United States for its continued support of Ukraine. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown.
0: It's 8.06.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Chestnut Hill School, leading the way in elementary education since 1860. Grow today. Transform tomorrow. On the web at TCHS.org. The Patriots
0: were trounced by the Chicago Bears 33-14 last night in Foxborough. The Celtics lost to the Bulls in Chicago. The final there was 120-102. to Tonight, at the Garden the Bruins host the Dallas Stars. It'll be cloudy today with a chance for showers, and it's still pretty foggy out. High in the mid-60s, cloudy overnight with more lingering showers in the 50s. Another round of showers and storms tomorrow. It'll be in the mid-60s again. We'll finally dry out on Thursday. It's 59 degrees in Boston at
10: 8.07. WBUR supporters include Focus Features with Armageddon Time, starring Anne Hathaway, Jeremy Strong, and Anthony Hopkins, One Family's Pursuit of the American Dream, from writer-director James Gray, and select theaters Friday.
12: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Faldin.
11: And I'm Steve Inskeep. We're listening to voters who will decide control of Congress. Our team interviewed more than 40 people in two congressional districts to sample what's on their minds. All are people to reckon with because all have the power of the vote. We started in Ohio, which is choosing a U.S. senator, specifically Akron, Ohio, where a congressional seat is also considered a toss-up. On the morning we arrived, a senior citizen's line dancing class was underway. All
1: right, here we go. Let's break it down. Okay, break it down. All right,
11: let's do it right. <laughs> a woman gestured toward our editor, Ali Schweitzer, and me. Oh, oh, we're supposed to participate in the line dance. Okay. Right, right, right. And we did as duty required participatory journalism. Hello there, ma'am. It's your first day. It is also my first day. Right, left, right, left, left. Afterward, five women sat to talk. Do we want to do want to pull up a couple chairs or just stand? Okay. Can sit okay, the table? Including Teresa Peak. This is a great community to raise your
24: children. I think that the school systems are doing a phenomenal job. They've totally remodeled most of our schools.
11: We were in a community center in a largely black neighborhood where houses line up on tree-lined streets. But Margaret Bush has concerns.
9: I have cameras because we have a lot of shootings in South Akron. A lot. I mean, they go down the street like cowboys and Indians shooting back at each other. Mm. And so I had to get cameras around my house.
11: People also worry about a different kind of shooting. Akron police last summer killed Jayland Walker, who was fleeing a traffic stop.
24: Well, we want protection from people in the streets and from our own police officers if you can shoot someone 60 times. That's just overkill and I'm I'm more afraid now to stop an officer and say, well, will you help me?
11: When we asked how people feel about the country, Margaret Bush spoke of inflation.
9: I'll take an example a bucket of chitlins used to be $8.99 okay nobody eats chitlins but black people okay now they're $24.99 the same bucket that was $8.99 two years ago.
11: Several women said they're voting for Democrats for Congress but the issues they highlighted crime and inflation are issues Republicans are campaigning on. A Democrat last won this congressional district now the seat is open in this old industrial region headquarters of Goodyear time. When the job is tough and the roads are too a man needs a tire that can take it 20th century factories drew migrants here from the american south and from europe including the greek ancestors of brian williams who's the county republican chairman
16: my grandfather worked at goodyear for 35 years Uh, you could smell it in the air my grandparents had grape leaves and pear trees and everything in their backyard of their little city lot and we'd go over and we'd eat the fruit and you could taste the rubber of the fruit
11: some children and grandchildren of those immigrants are now voters for William's party, like the man who runs Emilio's Pizza.
16: Hi, Robert G, here. you got it.
11: You're the guy who's got the name on the uh, business. Well, how my father
16: started. Oh, your father started,
11: yeah. how long ago?
16: 70 years ago, and uh, right now, my uh, son works with me at night, so.
11: Talking over the counter, he said he's very focused on the soaring price okay, of ingredients, like eggs. Are you following the election this year? There's elections yeah, for I Congress. Know.
16: I would imagine it's going to be a landslide Republican because they're telling people that they could change it.
11: But in Akron, new immigrants are raising new issues. Just across from the Italian pizzeria stands an old Italian community center, which has a new sign. It's now a wedding hall catering to people from South Asia. Hello. Hello. Yeah, hi there. Yes. We hi. found the co-owner, Janga Gajmer, continuing his renovation. He is a refugee from Bhutan. I mean, you know, we live in a, like as a refugee camp in you know, like more than 20 years. Akron actively welcomes migrants and refugees to stop its population from declining. Some of them just held an engagement party in the wedding hall. <laughs> I love it. What a great space. The It looks like could be neon behind the husband and wife seats there says better together. Some of the newcomers are now US citizens and plan to vote. One we met as a refugee from Southeast Asia. Saw Win. I
9: became a US citizen in 2019 and also voted for the first time in 2020 elections. It's matters to me voting. I already have planned for this of uh, November 8th. I'm going to take two friends. I'll reach out to them. They're going to go with me to the location to vote on their day.
11: We met him at an Asian community center where the Democratic congressional candidate had just spoken. Younger voters there told us they worried about hate crimes and student loans. After we met them, we had lunch in a Thai restaurant run by a refugee couple and went walking door to door in the wind. Brick Street from the early 20th century, I guess, and these houses seem to be kind of a century old. Candidate signs decorate some lawns. J.D. Vance. Vote Madison. Those are Republicans seeking open seats in the U.S. Senate and House. The Democrats are Tim Ryan and Amelia Sykes. Both races are considered close and were closely followed by the first people who answered their door. Hi there, we're reporters with NPR, National Public Radio. My name is Steve Inskeep. Hey, how are you? real uh, Steve
25: Yes, I am, yeah.
11: Hi puppy. Richard Kramer is retired and a Vietnam veteran. He's heard the campaign talk about crime. Um, But as
10: far as I'm understanding, crime has been diminishing.
11: And it's more of scare tactics, I think, used by politicians. A chart released by the Akron mayor's office shows robberies and some other crimes are up in the past year. But overall reported crimes are down. Nationwide, violent crime rates dropped massively in recent decades, but have been rising in recent years. Kramer worries more about investigations of the January 6th attack, which he's been watching on MSNBC. It's just so very frightening that we came so close to losing it all. And his wife Jenny Kramer worries about abortion rights. A Supreme Court ruling cleared the way for an Ohio law that bans almost all abortions. Though a judge has blocked that law for now, Kramer sees a broader attack on women in society. How do you feel about the future for your kids and grandkids?
27: I think. My grandsons will do okay.
11: Your grandsons?
27: Yeah, I have three grandsons. But the way things are going for women...
11: You're shaking your head.
27: No, I I just don't think they're going to have a future.
11: The Kramers have followed the careers of their local Democratic candidates and plan to vote for them. They've seen the signs for the Republican candidates in the yard just across this brick street. Do you guys talk about that at all? No, we don't talk
10: because before the 2020 election, he had a a huge Trump
11: sign, a flag over here. And that was all you wanted to know? That was all I needed to know. The neighbor across the street wasn't home, but the people behind them answered the door. They have a green shingled house with wind chimes on the porch and four Halloween pumpkins out front. What's your name? Deborah. Hi, Hi, Deborah. Oh, hey, how are you? Hi. Patrick. Hi, Patrick. Hey, nice to meet you both. Nice to meet you both. As always, we asked open-ended questions. What concerns people have about the community or country? Well,
4: first of all, um, you missed me taking the Trump signs down because I was about to mow the lawn. Oh, okay. So I'm definitely conservative.
11: And Deborah Lewis has followed Republican claims that Christians are being denied free speech. There's a deteriorating
4: thing that's happening within the schools, within the communities, individually,
11: mm-hmm. um, with taking away freedoms. Do you guys have any experience of that in your own day-to-day lives around here? Um, well,
4: this community, I've lived in, within this community for about three years. She said, I said
11: she felt restricted around immigrants from other cultures. Her friend Patrick Ramsdell works as a nurse, though his car in the driveway has stickers against vaccines. He doesn't believe the science and also doesn't believe the dozens of courts and thousands of officials who affirmed that Trump lost
6: in 2020. I'm a very spiritual person as well, and there's a Jewish rabbi that I follow, and he says that he's able to look inside the Torah, inside the Hebrew language, and there's codes, you know, that are actually hidden in it and he found Trump's name in there. A New
11: Jersey preacher has published a series of books claiming to find current events in the Bible. Ramsdell says he came to faith while reading the Gospel of John. Let me just jump in for a second. Book of John, by the way, is a beautiful book, but how does that connect to Donald Trump? People don't necessarily think of him as a particularly spiritual or devout person.
6: You're right, and I know Trump you know, is a man just like us, and we're all capable of both bad and good. He
11: embraces a common evangelical view of Trump as God's instrument, whose misdeeds are all part of the plan. By now, the national divisions over Trump are familiar, but something new will influence the voting here in 2022.
27: 10-TV News at 6 begins with breaking news tonight. Just minutes ago, Ohio's redistricting commission approved maps to send to the state Supreme Court. This is
11: redistricting the changed the boundaries of Ohio's 13th district. The former Democratic seat is now closely divided. And that matters in congressional races where many people don't know the candidates and vote the party line. The new district includes rural areas well south of Akron, where producer Lisa Wiener and I walked from door to door in a harsh wind.
16: Okay, these next two.
11: In a neighborhood of widely spaced houses, we found a woman who gave her name as Glenda.
17: I was a Democrat. I grew up a Democrat. Always voted Democrat. Up until the election when Trump came on board. And I'm not saying I like Trump. I don't like what's happening in our country right now.
11: In explaining her political evolution, she says her husband had to sell his furniture store in a nearby town.
17: We couldn't compete
11: with the market.
17: We had to buy cases from China, and they would send us the junkiest furniture ever.
11: Would you vote for Trump a third time? Mm -mm. You would not vote for him a third time. Mm -mm. Why not?
17: I don't. After the January 6th, I just don't trust him. I don't. I do not trust him now. I'm afraid he's going to cause problems like he's already caused. I never dreamed in a million years he would do something like that. Even if he did do it, I don't know. What do I know? But I won't vote for him again.
11: She reached her limit on the man who drew her into the Republican Party. But she has not reached her limit on being Republican. She says she's likely to vote for her party's candidates for House and Senate, elections that could give control of Congress to Trump's party. We're hearing voters in key districts, and tomorrow we visit Western Pennsylvania. This is NPR News.
0: This is ninety point nine WBUR. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Chinnoy. Coming up, we hear from George M. Johnson, whose memoir about being black and queer has become one of the most banned books in the U.S. It's eight nineteen.
16: Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming
9: you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at
4: wbur.org/cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students who love to learn thrive. Virtual open house, November 30th, buacademy.org.
21: I'm Vipa Fernandez. A 12-year-old girl from Ukraine has been keeping a diary since the early days of the war there. She's one of the lucky ones who made it out with her grandmother. I know there is no future there because um, universities... Everything is destroyed. That's next time on Here and Now, today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: It's a tough commute into Boston this morning. From the west, Soldiers Field Road is closed at Western Avenue because a truck hit the BU Bridge. State police say it won't be removed until after the morning commute. That's causing huge backups on the Mass Pike and Memorial Drive. In your forecast, some fog and drizzle this morning that could hang around until midday, then cloudy with a high near 66. Tonight there's a slight chance of rain and temperatures fall to a low around 59. Tomorrow cloudy, near 64 with a good chance of showers and maybe thunderstorms that could produce heavy rain. It's 59 degrees in Boston at 8:20.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Scribner, publisher of Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr, author of All the Light We Cannot See. Cloud Cuckoo Land is about the power of books to unite us. Available in paperback in bookstores and online. And from Linda Mood Bell Learning Centers, providing instruction for students to catch up or get ahead. Live, online, or in-person programs for reading, comprehension, and math lindamoodbell.com slash npr and from orion pictures presenting till based on the true story of Mamie till mobley's fight for justice for her son emmett till starring danielle dedweiler now playing in select theaters everywhere october 28th
11: it's morning edition from npr news i'm steve inskeep and i'm layla falden When George M. Johnson was growing up, they didn't see themselves in books,
12: so Johnson wrote the book they wished they'd had, the 2020 memoir All Boys
24: Aren't Blue. It's about the love that I had from a Black family as a young Black queer boy from Plainfield, New Jersey, uh, who at the age of five uh, didn't really understand why I was different, but knew that I was different, even if I didn't have the words to say it.
12: Johnson says it's for teens that might feel alone as they navigate their identities and the world. But today, it's become one of the most banned books in the US in a growing push to pull certain books off shelves in schools. Much of the focus of advocacy groups calling for these bans are on books dealing with race, racism, gender identity, and sexual orientation. So Johnson is in the center of a fight against censorship, a battle over what kids and teens can and cannot read.
24: When you look at the curriculum, the curriculum that is being taught in most school systems is still heavily geared towards the straight white male teen, uh, and so when we now have the ability to put books into curriculum that tell other stories, that tell stories of that are non-white, that tell stories that are non-heterosexual, um, they're they're trying to take them out across the board because you know it's like oh my god how. How, how dangerous would it be if, you know, young white teens had to actually learn about the other people who exist in society with them?
12: Is your book available where you went to school?
24: <laughs> yes. Okay. But it is being challenged in New Jersey. So um, it has been interesting because some of my classmates from high school are now high school teachers. And, um, you know, they read the book and were like, one, we had no idea you were going through all of this, George, and they're like, we feel so bad because you were always just so cheerful and so funny. And realistically, like they were like, you were going through a lot. The the second thing is they were like, it's beautiful because some of us now have queer students. and we know you and we knew you and we get to like, not just share the book, but actually, you know, tell them like, but I know, I actually know this person um, and went to school with this person. And some of them now even have, you know, queer children and they're they're using the book and, and telling them like, I had a friend in high school who's going through what you're going through, right? And so it became very relatable. So it's been interesting in New Jersey. We've won every challenge in New Jersey uh, because New Jersey is one of the only states that allows uh, LGBTQ curriculum in Mm -hmm. uh, high schools. So, you know, but yes, it has been challenged in New Jersey in a few places, but we won um, in, in those cases.
12: You know, there's a saying that you have repeated often about why you wrote that book. If you could repeat that again for me, And then i have a question
24: uh yes i'm gonna assume it's the tony morrison Morrison. quote (laughs) (laughs) it's the only quote i have on my body um you have a tattoo that you want to read yes i do have it tattooed because i have to look at it every day sometimes when i need a little inspiration um the quote is if there's a book you want to read and it hasn't been written yet then you must write it
12: so when i read that 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 quote was your inspiration i just wondered what it felt like to have written the book that you needed as a kid and then see it become banned in how many school districts
2: now?
24: I believe there are up to 29 school districts, but more keep popping up. Um, watching it be banned, it's just kind of bittersweet at the end of the day, because it's like none of this had to happen, in my opinion. It's like... If you don't want your student to read it, that's fine. Just opt your child out. But to try and dictate that other students who you know need this text, students who have publicly on record said that works like mine have saved their lives, works like mine have helped them name their abusers, works like mine have um, helped them come to terms with, who they are and feel validated in the fact that there is somebody else that exists in the world like them and you want to remove that from them. I just think it's uh, it's sad at the end of the day, right? And, yeah. um, you know, for me, I know they're not attacking my story because you didn't read it. So it's like you can't attack something you actually don't know. Um, and this is really just an attack on an ideology that just says that LGBTQ people shouldn't exist.
12: When you wrote this book... Did you see yourself becoming a spokesperson for this kind of cause?
24: When I wrote the book, I always, like, I knew it was going to be challenged. And, you know, I knew at some point it was going to be banned.
12: Why did you know that?
24: I knew it because I remember watching The Hate U Give get banned. And I was like, huh, well, I've read The Hate U Give and I know what I'm writing. And I'm like, if that's getting banned, my book doesn't stand a chance. So, um, you know, and then, you know, by the time uh, the CRT wave started happening and it was like, okay, well, I definitely talk about, you know, uh, the problem with the former presidents of this country and slavery and, you know, writing, some of the wrongs that how history has been taught. So I always knew it was gonna be one of those books that got caught in it. I never thought it would become like such a heightened uh, center of political conversation. Uh, But at the same time, I've always been prepared for these type of things. I've been fighting for LGBTQ rights for as long as I can remember, uh, because in turn I'm fighting for myself and fighting for people like me.
12: You know, in all of this negative um reaction that we've been discussing um book banning and uh, groups politicizing the situation have you had also those support and positive reaction to your work from teachers, from librarians, from parents?
24: Oh yeah, most definitely um I would say the support far outweighs the non-support um it is being talked about at school board meetings like that you because they're the loudest, a lot of times the other side is what's heard the most, but Be very clear, I've sat in on school board meetings and watched enough of them. There is a lot of support for the book and teens have not only supported like at school board meetings, but they've written letters. So the book in of itself, like I said, it's it's so much bigger than just my story. Um, And I'm watching it in real time, uh, help so many people uh, from parents to to children, to teachers, to librarians uh, across the board.
12: George M. Johnson, author of All Boys Aren't Blue. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is NPR News.
0: This is WPOR's Morning Edition. Up next, Biden administration officials frustrated by cuts in oil production are going to be noticeably absent from the so-called Davos in the Desert summit opening in Saudi Arabia today, despite that... Many American business leaders are attending. It's 8-29. This Friday at WBUR City Space, celebrate the Halloween season with the Endless Thread podcast team as it explores the scary world of bots. Get tickets at WBUR.org events.
10: WBUR supporters include Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the all-new 2023 Subaru vehicles are arriving. Love is out there. CitysideSubaru.com.
16: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Biden administration and allies in Europe are rejecting Moscow's claim that the government in Kiev is preparing to deploy a radioactive dirty bomb in Ukraine. Russia is expected to raise the issue today with the U.N. Security Council. NPR's Greg Myrie says Ukraine is inviting U.N. inspectors to visit the country's nuclear facilities. Ukraine is telling the UN's
13: International Atomic Energy Agency it can come look for itself and it appears the agency may do so in the coming days. A number of Russian officials allege Ukraine is developing a dirty bomb, a prohibited weapon made by adding radioactive material to a conventional explosive. Russia is not providing evidence. However, the allegations have prompted a flurry of calls between senior Russian and US military officials the first such conversations in months. The U.N. nuclear agency has been closely monitoring Ukraine, where Russian troops have seized the country's largest nuclear power plant. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington.
16: Britain's new prime minister, Rishi Sunak, says he will place economic stability and confidence at the heart of his government's agenda. Sunak was officially appointed by King Charles today, making him the U.K.'s third prime minister this year. He replaces Liz Truss, who resigned after six weeks in office. This is NPR News. From
0: WBR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chenoy. Today, Senator Elizabeth Warren and Congresswoman Ayanna Pressley will visit four cities in Massachusetts to encourage people to apply for federal student loan forgiveness. WBR's Vanessa Ochevillo reports they'll be stopping in Boston, Brockton, Worcester, and Springfield. Over 800,000 Massachusetts residents are qualified for some relief.
27: Of those, half could get the maximum amount of $20,000. The lawmakers say they want to be as thorough in their outreach as they were in their advocacy for student debt cancellation. Presley was a recent guest on Radio Boston.
5: We're hitting the road to meet people right in their communities and get them signed up in real time for this life-changing, life-saving relief.
0: The tour will happen even though a federal appeals court temporarily
1: blocked the program on Friday. The White House says the order does not stop the federal government from reviewing applications. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm
0: Vanessa Ochevillio. A new nationwide poll out of UMass Amherst shows more than half of Americans don't want a rematch in the presidential election in 2024. 52% say it would be better if President Biden doesn't run for re-election, and 53% say it would be better if former President Donald Trump didn't run again. The same poll finds half of Americans want to see Trump charged for his efforts to overturn the 2020 election and for his role in the January 6th Capitol insurrection. Teachers in South Hadley are meeting today to discuss the possibility of a strike. The South Hadley Education Association says this is its second year working without a contract. Teachers are asking for higher pay and for a new contract to be quickly ratified. School officials say they're committed to negotiating in good faith. Teacher strikes are not allowed in Massachusetts, although educators went on strike last week in both Malden and Haverhill. An update for drivers. Eastbound Storo Drive and Soldiers Field Road are back open. A truck hit the BU Bridge overnight, forcing the road to be closed. State police say the truck is clear and the road is back open, but there are still major delays on the Mass Pike eastbound and Memorial Drive. It's 834.
4: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage. More at themusicemporium.com. The
0: Patriots lost to the Chicago Bears 33-14 to last night in Foxborough. The Pats record is now 3-4. and They'll visit the New York Jets on Sunday. The Celtics suffered their first loss of the season last night. They fell to the Bulls 120-102 in Chicago. The Cs are now off until Friday. And the Bruins are back at the garden tonight to skate with the Dallas Stars. In your forecast, fog this morning and a slight chance of showers. Temperatures will rise to the mid-60s. More showers possible this afternoon and this evening as temperatures fall to a low in the upper 50s. Tomorrow, rain and thunderstorms, then cloudy with a high in the low to mid-60s. We dry out on Thursday for a mostly sunny day near 70. It's 59 degrees in Boston at 834.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Your Part-Time Controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your Part-Time Controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation.
11: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden, And I'm Steve Inskeep. An investment conference nicknamed Davos in the Desert is underway in Saudi Arabia.
12: Top executives from some of the world's largest banks are there, along with billionaire investors. They're laying the groundwork for deals. On one level, it's an obvious move. Saudi Arabia ranks as one of the richest countries in the world. But the gathering comes as the U.S. harshly criticizes Saudi Arabia for its policies.
11: NPR's David Gurr is covering this story. David, good morning. Good
6: morning, Steve. So, who's attending? Well, a lot of bold face names. Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan Chase, David Solomon of Goldman Sachs, Charles Scharf of Wells Fargo, billionaire Steven Schwartzman, the CEO of the private equity firm Blackstone, is there. So is Ray Dalio, who ran the world's largest hedge fund until recently. Former President Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, is also on the agenda. Former Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin as well. Saudi Arabia is invested. In both of their multi billion dollar private equity funds. Hmm. So that gives you a sense of who's there, Steve. Who's not there is anyone from the current administration, which is currently reevaluating its relationship with Saudi Arabia.
11: Well, given the anger at the Saudis right now, why would the business leaders be going?
6: Well, there's money to be made. Let's not dance around that. One participant told me Saudi Arabia is pouring a gazillion dollars into renewable energy. The country has more than half a trillion dollars in a government-controlled investment fund. And Karen Young, who's with Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy, told me this conference is a way for Saudi Arabia to show off its ambitions beyond oil.
1: A new identity for the kingdom and, and the kingdom trying to get into what it sees as kind of futuristic sectors.
6: So there are panels on artificial intelligence and crypto and sports. Saudi Arabia is pouring tens of millions of dollars into a Gulf League it hopes will rival the PGA. And Karen Young told me Saudi Arabia sees itself now as a country with a more assertive foreign policy than before, and it's more confident in its ability to attract outside investment.
11: Which is interesting, given the trouble Saudi Arabia's been in in recent years for ordering the murder of a journalist and any number of other things. How does this fit? with the U.S. approach, the government approach to Saudi Arabia.
6: The contrast is very stark. Going back to that trip President Biden took to Saudi Arabia in July, he met with the crown prince, there was that fist bump, The administration was optimistic that visit would lead to Saudi Arabia helping at a time when oil has gotten more expensive because of the fallout from the war in Ukraine. But a couple of months later, it did the opposite. Saudi Arabia pushed for deep production cuts and prices have gone up again. So the decades long relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia is at a low point. But the White House has said repeatedly, Steve, it's not up to them to tell business leaders if they should steer clear of this conference.
11: I guess President Biden can't criticize them too much for going to Saudi Arabia since he recently went to Saudi Arabia, but Biden has been pretty outspoken about Saudi Arabia's human rights record all along.
6: Yeah, it's also about this, the country's human rights record. After the killing of columnist Jamal Khashoggi, many executives pulled out of the conference, but someone who has not stayed away is Anthony Scaramucci, perhaps best known for the 10 days or so he spent as former President Trump's communications director. He has spent most of his career as an investor.
13: To me... It's a tragedy. It's an event that
9: has to be recognized as a tragedy, but I think we have to look at the longer-term goals and the longer-term interests of global peace, global prosperity, and frankly, global
13: progress.
6: Scaramucci applauds Saudi Arabia for making some progress in recent years. He says he's optimistic about the role it wants to play in the wider world. But when it comes to the killing of Khashoggi, which the U.S. intelligence community says the crown prince approved, Scaramucci says the broader issue is are we capable of moving past that? Those are his words, and Steve Scaramucci thinks we should be. David Gura, thanks so much. Thank you, Steve.
12: With midterm voting underway, election officials across the country are trying to get ready for all the ways that two years of false claims and conspiracy theories may have damaged trust in their work. From Colorado Public Radio, Benta Berkland reports on what county clerks are doing in that state.
27: Even though it wasn't a swing state in 2020, Colorado has been at the forefront of false claims that the presidential election was stolen. And by now, Republican Clerk Carly Coppice has probably heard it all. Coppice oversees elections in conservative Weld County in northern Colorado. She says groups that believe the system is corrupt have been encouraging their members to get involved, including as poll watchers for the state's June primary.
22: I approved 35 watchers during that primary election, and every single one of them had ties to either USCIP, which is a known election denier group, or other similar organizations, this really does put us in a very tough spot.
27: The U.S. Election Integrity Plan is a Colorado group that says its goal is to defend democracy and root out fraud. Kappes says the volunteers' agenda didn't fluster her.
22: I took full advantage of it, to be honest. I was like, thank you for giving me these people so that I can show them what actually happens. And... Show them. I mean, I literally had one watcher get on their knees and follow my wires just so that I could prove to them that it is a closed network, that it is air gap, that it's not connected to the Internet.
27: Election deniers have spread conspiracies that those machines are connected to the Internet and rigged votes for President Biden on a tour of Weld County's elections office. COPAS points to the bright green wires that connect the machines that scan paper ballots to the secure room where a different machine tabulates those results. They can see that it's going
22: actually into the wall Uh, and then on the other side that this is our secure server room and they can actually see from the window in there it going straight into the server.
27: She's also adding video screens throughout the room to play PowerPoint presentations on different aspects of how the elections process works. Again just trying to have that information
22: constantly rolling Uh, so hopefully you know they can stand here and they can watch that
27: and then have a little more educated questions according to colorado election officials other conspiracies are circulating too one false claim urges voters to intentionally make mistakes when filling out their paper ballot to trigger a hand count of that ballot and that's not accurate that's democratic eagle county clerk regina o'brien from western colorado she says purposefully making a mistake will simply lead a bipartisan team of election judges to review the ballot before sending it on to the machine. If a ballot is mismarked, it will go to adjudication on the same tabulation systems that we use. As clerks battle misinformation, they're also trying to be more transparent. O'Brien is adding cameras and more security, additional trainings and public tours. Counties like Denver will live stream their ballot processing room. Matt Crane heads the Colorado County Clerks Association. He's a Republican.
10: We're in this situation right now for two reasons. One, because of a lie of a stolen election, which absolutely is a lie. The second,
6: and probably as big a reason, is a failure of leadership for people who know the truth to stand up and speak the truth.
27: Crane says that makes these bipartisan efforts of local election officials to restore trust even more critical. For NPR News, I'm Benta Brooklyn in Denver.
12: This is NPR News.
0: I'm Rupa Shunoy in Boston. Next year on Morning Edition, this fall foliage season in New England has defied expectations. We hear from a professional leaf peeper who says you still have time to enjoy it. A slight chance of showers most of the day today, otherwise cloudy and in the low to mid-60s. Tonight it falls into the 50s and the chance of rain continues. Tomorrow, cloudy in the morning, rain likely in the afternoon in the low to mid-60s. It's 59 degrees in Boston at 843.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dublin School. Southern New Hampshire Boarding and Day School. Rooted in curiosity, kindness, and fun. Grades 9 through 12. Open house November 6th dublinschool.org.
0: Now in business news, a Florida company says it plans to buy Cambridge-based Applied Genetic Technologies Corporation. Syncona Limited announced it reached a tentative agreement to do so over the weekend. Shares in AGTC rose about 60 percent following the news. Apparel chain Alo Yoga wants a Boston judge to force a developer to honor its lease at a building currently under construction on Newbury Street. The Boston Business Journal reports the company claims Chicago developer L3 Capital violated the deal in favor of another tenant who was willing to pay more. Alo All- already has a location in the seaport. Cambridge is home to the top two colleges in the world. Harvard and MIT ranked number one and two on US News and World Report's ranking of overall best global universities. The rankings weigh academic research performance in nearly 50 subjects. It's 8.45.
10: Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth.
0: This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. With one week left to go in October, this year's fall foliage season has been nothing short of amazing. And it's not over just yet. For more, we're joined now by Jeff Folger, who runs the Salem-based website Jeff Foliage. Good morning.
14: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for being here. So this season so far has just been gorgeous. Do you rank the seasons in your mind? And if so, how does this rank near the best in your memory?
14: Uh, (laughs) I would say that this has probably been one of the prettiest autumns that I've seen in a while. I was expecting it to be a lot earlier, and it just kept on waiting, waiting, and then all of a sudden, bam, it happened.
0: Now, there was a lot of talk... uh, maybe a few months ago, that the drought that hit us so hard would mean a less brilliant leaf peeping season. So what happened there?
14: It did and didn't. Um, (laughs) It's one of those things where it's always up in the air as to how it's going to affect us. None of the scientists can say with assuredness that, okay, we had X amount of drought, it's going to have this problem on us. I'm seeing a lot of yellows here in Salem, a lot of uh, orangey rusty colors so it's not at least in salem i'm not seeing it quite as bright as it has been in the past um some years where we get a little bit more moisture during the summer but then a dry september and a dry october we go into a drought that way and the colors just pop but when we got drought all summer long that does tend to hurt the trees a little bit. And uh, I think that affects the colors somewhat. They're just sometimes they're not as bright.
0: What about climate change? You've been doing this for two decades. Have you noticed any impact on the colors or the timing of the season?
14: You know, it used to be mid-September. You'd start seeing really bright colors coming on. And I'm talking back in the 1940s and 50s, um, a little before my time. But since I've started this in the, uh, the last 20 years here, I have noticed, you know, the fall colors start to kind of show up in September. The last week in September used to be maybe this second to last week of September. It would, you know, start to turn, but you know, by you know, 2010 and later, it just seems to be slowing down as to when climate change, it's throwing a wrench in things and we just have to kind of step back and take a look at, you know, what we think is going to happen and keep track of it and, uh, Keep going.
0: For people who still want to head out, maybe this upcoming weekend to see the colors, where do you suggest the best place to go is in the region?
14: Well, I'm planning on being down in the uh, some of the coastal areas, but I'm going to try and hit Boston. I'm going to be heading along the border between Massachusetts and Rhode Island, looking in some of the different villages, um, you know, maybe uh, Sturbridge Village even, e- even out into the Pioneer Valley somewhat. <laughs>
0: You know. Lastly, just to sum up, and I know you probably get this question a lot, but why do you think it is that the fall foliage in New England draws in so many people year after year?
14: I think it's almost the mystique that it started back in the 50s, and it was always pointed out that the colors were the best here in New England. And a lot of that is Just the the variety of hardwoods that um, turn color. That's my guess.
0: (laughs) Jeff Bolger from the website. Jeff Foliage. thank you so much for speaking with WBWAR's Morning Edition.
14: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shenoy. Coming up, we check in when We check in with Myra Flores, the first Mexican-born woman to represent the southernmost district of Texas in Congress and the first Republican in the rule since Reconstruction. And coming up at noon today, it's Here and Now, and Deepa Fernandez is on the line to fill us in about what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Deepa.
21: Hi, Rupa. Oh, I wish I was with you in New England to see those beautiful fall-colored leaves. They are very beautiful. It's It sounds wonderful. Well, today on the show, we are going to be doing some international coverage. We're going to countries where there is major news happening. Of course, Ukraine we will be getting an update on the war in Ukraine. We'll be going to India because Uh, The United Kingdom has a new prime minister, and he is of Indian origin. We'll hear how that's rippling in India. And we'll also be going to Haiti, where um, there is a lot of ongoing strife and turmoil. But we're also going to go to the streets of Los Angeles and hear about a community of Mexican immigrants, indigenous to the area called Oaxacans, who were some of those who were slighted and insulted and demeaned in the comments by the city council members recently. We're going to learn more about their community.
0: Oh, there's so much to follow up on there. I'm glad you're doing it. Thank you, Deepa. Thank you, Rupa. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.51.
20: Writer Kelly Corrigan says there's a lie at the heart of the fear over college admissions. The lie is that this is a binary moment, and that if you get to the University of Stretch Dream goal, everything will unfold accordingly. I'm Mary Louise Kelly, surviving and growing through the madness of college applications this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. It'll be cloudy today and in the mid-60s with rain possible. Tonight it falls into the 50s and there's a slight chance of showers. Right now it's 59 degrees and it is 852 in Boston.
23: This week, we're putting a Texas focus on some of our coverage with Election Day two weeks away. Marketplace
4: Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Learn
23: more at AmazonBusiness.com. I'm David Brancaccio, reporting this week from Houston. We'll start with a changing economic and political landscape as far south as you can go in Texas, where since Reconstruction, an unbroken line of Democrats had represented the Rio Grande Valley in Congress. But then this June, Myra Flores became the first Mexican-born woman to be represented in the district to represent the district and the first Republican since just after the Civil War. It was a special election with low turnout, but Republicans in South Texas are encouraged. Marketplace's Andy Euler reports from
7: McAllen. In a lot of ways, Denise Sandoval is your typical Rio Grande Valley voter. She was born in Monterey, Mexico, and came to Texas as a kid. She voted for Donald Trump in 2020 and calls herself a conservative, but she's reluctant to call herself a Republican.
5: I'm not for one side or the other. I'm like my own idea, right? I'm like, okay, this is what should should happen, right?
7: Both parties are trying to win over voters like Sandoval. She's a widow and now a single mother of three kids, six, nine, and 11 years old. She's against abortion, but thinks the state should legalize marijuana for the tax revenue. She owns a small ice cream business in town and says economically, the local Republican party is lacking.
5: Our mayor in McAllen, okay, so he's Republican, but at the end of the day, down here, there is no support for entrepreneurs. How how can we better the local economy by supporting the local producers when they're supporting big box?
7: Sandoval says she tends to avoid talking politics with her friends because... Voting Republican in the Rio Grande Valley remains a bit taboo. But that may be changing, according to Meson Kim, who studies political parties and public opinion at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. At least among her students.
21: They told me that they think that the Democratic Party just took it took our region for granted. And so students mentioned that and now they think the Democratic Party now paying the cost for neglecting, you know, the voters here in this region.
7: The cost to Democrats is losing voters like Fernando Mendoza. He lives in McAllen as a self-employed musician who also works in construction. He says he and his dad always voted Democrat no matter who the candidate was. There was really no discussion, even if the D candidate was a fair-haired dog.
16: I must admit I was a quote-unquote yellow dog Democrat for many years because I, I did follow my father
7: and I followed his lead. But now he calls himself a Republican for the very reason Mison Kim's students cited. We've woken up and we see that, you know, we have been neglected and we have been taken for granted. He recognizes that the state's Democratic Party is trying to win him back with more outreach events and advertising. But he says, for him at least, it's a little too late for that. In McAllen, Texas, I'm Andy Euler for Marketplace.
23: Tomorrow, how Democrats in that South Texas Valley are working to push back. Let's do the numbers. After the Dow closed up 417 points, 1.3% yesterday, a turn in the weather, with the Dow and S&P futures down in the 4 to 5 tenths of a percent range. NASDAQ futures are down a tenth percent, with back orders easing in the summer to fall quarter. General Motors was making money with news this morning that net income, a measure of profit, is up 37%. GM, the stock, is up 3.8% in pre-market trading. Companies are changing the way they calculate credit scores, which could make it easier for people, including those from disadvantaged communities, to qualify for home loans. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with details.
6: The Federal Housing Finance Agency, which sets standards for mortgages backed by Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, will require credit scores from two different companies, not just one, as is the current practice. Most people are familiar with the FICO score, ranging from 300 to 850, the higher the better. But there is also a competing system set up by the three big credit reporting agencies. That system, called Vantage Score, includes data FICO doesn't and could provide scores for more people with limited credit history. The Urban Institute has found young people in many Black and Latino communities have struggled under the current FICO system. Mortgage lenders will also be required to use a new type of FICO score that considers spending trends over a two-year period. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace.
23: And the apparel company Adidas this morning confirmed that it has dropped Ye, the artist formerly known as Kanye West, following his erratic and offensive behavior, including a stream of anti-Semitic comments. Adidas poached West from Nike back in 2013, and his lines of merchandise have been extraordinarily profitable for the German company. No comment yet from Yeh himself.
4: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And by Palo Alto Networks, secure access for hybrid workforces wherever work happens. The future of secure access is ZTNA 2.0. PaloAltoNetworks.com.
23: A new Gallup poll out today finds a grim outlook for younger people regarding their chances to achieve the American dream. But some demographic groups are more pessimistic than others. Marketplace's Lily Jamali has more.
25: Gallup has been asking some version of the following question since 2008, says Megan Brennan, a senior editor at the polling organization. How likely do you think it is that today's youth will have a better life than their parents? This year's responses were among the most pessimistic yet. Less than half of those surveyed in Gallup's most recent poll said they expected young people to have a better life. That's an 18 percentage point drop since 2019. And there was an even more significant change in how Republicans answered that question. The percentage of Republican and Republican-leaning respondents who said it was somewhat or very likely the next generation would surpass their parents was half of what it was three years ago. It's
26: pretty stark. You know, partisanship is really um, a large driver behind this.
25: Brennan says the downturn in the economy, marked by high inflation, is another major driver of the pessimism. Wei Cheng, a sociologist at NYU, says many Americans, especially young Americans, are frustrated. There are a lot of concerns of this lack of intergenerational mobility, and that's affecting how they think about their future and prospects. But Gallup found households with lower incomes were more hopeful about young people's chances than those with higher incomes. I'm Lily Dramali for Marketplace.
23: Our producers are Meredith Garrettson morby Ariana Rosas, Stephen Ryan, Alex Schroeder, Erica Soderstrom, and Jarrett Dang. From Texas this week, courtesy of Houston Public Media, I'm David Brancaccio. This is the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM. American Public Media.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. It'll be cloudy and in the mid-60s today with a slight chance of rain. Tonight it falls into the 50s and there's another slight chance of showers. Tomorrow a good chance of rain and thunderstorms and temperatures in the low 60s. Mostly sunny on Thursday near 70. It's 60 degrees in Boston and we're almost at nine o'clock. The BBC is next.
12: Russia invaded Ukraine eight months ago, seemingly unprepared for the fight Ukraine would put up.
13: Zelensky has been remarkable. The top civilian and military leadership of Ukraine has proven to be extraordinarily intelligent, much more intelligent than either the Russians or the Americans yet realize.
12: I'm Kimberly atkins historian Timothy Snyder on how the war might end. That's on point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR
4: news station.